Uh, well, friends, his name was Eddie. He stood a head taller than anyone else. He was built like a tank. He was a star of just about every sporting team in the school. He was our hero. His exploits on the sporting field was le- were legendary. Uh, I still remember one game when uh, our school rugby team was down a few points against a rival school. Uh, the clock was ticking down, uh, and our sophisticated strategy was this. Get the ball to Eddie. <laughs> and so we did, and uh, you could just see our team stand back in awe and amazement as Eddie took the ball and with half the opposition team clinging to his back, um, drove and bulldozed forward to score the winning points. But uh, you see, friends, it wasn't just a, a victory for Eddie that day, but it was actually a victory for all of us. Uh, it was a victory that spread far and wide. The, the team celebrated, of course, But the whole school celebrated, and it is still talked about to this very day. Uh, We all love heroes, don't we? Uh, Even though the culture of Australia is often to cut down the tall poppy, uh, I think it's still true to say that we love heroes. We love it when we can celebrate the victory of our heroes because in some profound way, we get to participate in what is going on. It happens in sport when our hero clinches those final points in the dying minutes. It happens in the office when um, that star colleague secures the deal which uh, brings joy to the office. Uh, You may think of other examples, but often we celebrate because of the victory of another. Uh, Well, friends, uh, if you've joined us for the first time today... um, uh, Welcome. Uh, It's great to see you. Um, At our church, we've been uh, looking through the book of Psalms, as we've heard um, again and again this morning. And uh, uh, we're looking at Psalm 22 this morning, and um, I want to suggest that uh, this book is really about celebrating the victory of a hero. Uh, Who is this hero? Well, uh, in this series, we've already seen uh, a hero I don't know whether you remember, but uh, a few weeks ago we looked at Psalm chapter 2. And uh, in Psalm chapter 2, we saw the hero of the nation of Israel. Uh, We met God's anointed king. Uh, He is the one who has been given uh, the inheritance of the nations. And he is the one who will rule the world and crush the enemies of God and his people. And uh, it's not really too much of a stretch, I think, to say that the rest of the Psalms, after Psalm 2, is really a search for who this hero or who this king really is. Uh, Who is he? Where can he be found, is the question of the Psalms. But today, uh, we're we're going to have a look at uh, Psalm 22, uh, where we meet one of the greatest kings of Israel in the person of King David. Uh, In fact, the first two books of the Psalms, which goes from uh, chapter 1 all the way to chapter 72, where book 2 ends, uh, focuses in on this person of David, and it asks the question, uh, could he be the Psalm 2 king? Is he the hero that we have been looking for? 
But notwithstanding that important question, I want to suggest that if we properly understand Psalm 22 today, uh, we will go away from here celebrating and rejoicing and praising God for the victory of this king who is our hero. However, friends, uh, one of the things that you see in many of the Psalms, and uh, you've probably noticed this as you've kind of skimmed through the Psalms um, at some point, is that the king in the Psalms, uh, particularly to, you know, in the first two books of the, uh, of the Psalms, is often in trouble. Have you noticed that when you've read the Psalms? Uh, he's in distress. He's often on the run from his enemies. He suffers. However, you'll notice that in this particular psalm, the king suffers with an intensity that is not seen in the other psalms. How is the king suffering? Well, uh, turn with me to Psalm 22, and uh, you'll see there in verse 1 that he's suffering the extreme dereliction of being forsaken by God. The extreme dereliction of being forsaken by God. Uh, He says in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. You see, this king who walked so closely with God and loved God intimately, is now experiencing this same God forsaking him, abandoning him, deserting him. And as he prays to God in desperation, all he can hear is silence from the only one who, knows, who he knows can help him. But further, he experiences desertion Not only from God, but desertion from the people around him. And so have a look with me at verse 6. Verse 6, he says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. A worm is is a worthless creature, isn't it? Uh, it's the kind of creature that you kind of squash and stamp under your, under your foot. And so here, the king is treated as someone worthless and worthy of contempt by the people. He's scorned, he's despised, he's mocked. And, and the, the real twist of the knife here is that when these people mock him, they mock him for trusting in God, trusting in the Lord. But it's hurtful because the king knows that, in some sense, it's true. He trusts in God, but God is not saving him at this point. He's not rescuing him. And further, notice that the king not only experiences desertion, but he experiences death at the hand of his enemies. Uh, In verse 12, these enemies are imagined as powerful bulls that that surround him and corner him and as lions who threaten to tear him to pieces 
Uh, in verse 16, you'll notice that they're described as dogs who, uh, you know, in the ancient world, um, dogs weren't those, you know, cuddly poodles that, that we have, but they were more like vultures, <laughs> kind of circling around, ready to devour somebody who is close to death. And look at the death itself. In verse 14, uh, you'll notice there that the king is exhausted as his strength pours out of him like water. He is physically shattered as all his bones are out of joint. His courage is gone as his heart melts from the heat of the situation, a bit like wax melting in front of a flame. In verse 15, death is close as his tongue sticks to his jaws. If you've ever been with anyone who is dying, you will know that in their final moments, they thirst. Further, in verse 16, his enemies pierce his hands and his feet as the king lies humiliated in nakedness while his enemies divide up his clothes between them. But you know the worst thing about this for the king? The worst thing about this is that the king knows that somehow God himself is behind this death. He knows that somehow the God that he trusts in is behind this particular suffering. At the end of verse 15, you'll notice there that the king says to God these astonishing words, You, you God, lay me in the dust of death. And yet, friends, did you notice that through his suffering, the king continues to cling on to his faith and his trust of this God? The words, my God, my God, are actually words of trust, even as he questions why God would abandon him, aren't they? You see, even through the suffering, this king trusts God and he looks back at what he knows of God and he continues to put his trust in him that somehow God will deliver him or rescue him from his situation. Um, And so, for example, you can see it there in verses 3 to 5. The king looks back to God's rescue in the past. Uh, He's speaking about the exodus here. You know, this is when the people of Israel cried out to God uh, as they suffered as slaves in the land of Egypt. And God heard their cry in the past, and he rescued them. Or have a look with me at verses 9 to 11. Here, the king looks back, not at the exodus, but at his birth. And he thinks of God as the midwife. You know, um, uh, I don't... I don't know whether you remember your birth. You probably don't. But uh, we're all uh, helpless at birth, aren't we? At our birth. And so we need somebody to deliver us and to keep us safe through that process. And here, God is the midwife who delivers this king from the womb and lays him safe by his mother's breast. And so you can see there that the king continues to trust God through his suffering, even though he he experiences real forsakenness and real abandonment 
and real silence from God. And he continues to cry out for help that God would rescue him from his suffering. And so the first half of this psalm uh, ends with a cry for help from the king. Uh, You can see it there in verse 19. Uh, Verse 19, the king says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the, from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, friends, who is this psalm about? Uh, who is this psalm about? I know that, you know, in our minds it's always about Jesus. But who is this psalm about? I wonder. Well, I hope that you can see that in the first instance, uh, this psalm is describing the experiences of King David, isn't it? Uh, You can see in the heading to this psalm that the psalm is written by David himself. Uh, We don't actually know what particular circumstance uh, in his life he is describing here when he writes this psalm, but uh, we do know that David was a king who suffered greatly Uh, If you've read uh, the story of his life uh, in 1 and 2 Samuel, you might remember that uh, it is King Saul who pursues David because he wants to kill him out of jealousy. Uh, Or you might remember that one of David's own very own sons, Absalom, uh, also tries to kill him and take the throne. You see, David was no stranger to being on the run and and to suffering and, and to experiencing grief and sorrow and tears. And yet, when you read this psalm, uh, you begin to wonder whether that's the end of the story. For when you see the sheer depth of suffering and the intensity of God-forsakenness and the details of the death experience that you see there, well, you start to realize that In some ways, it doesn't actually fit David's life. David suffered greatly, but he didn't suffer this greatly. In other words, um, I think what is happening here is that a thousand years before the time of Jesus, David is writing this psalm, um, recounting his own suffering for sure, but he's actually writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit prophesying of what is to come. He's pointing forward to the suffering of David's greater son and God's greatest king, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. For, you see, it is at the cross of the Lord Jesus that, as we've seen in the New Testament reading, you hear this cry of dereliction from Psalm 22 on the lips of Jesus, don't you? Uh, We saw in the Matthew passage that he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is at the cross that you see the mocking of the Roman soldiers and the criminals and the Jewish religious leaders who cry the words of Psalm 22 when they say, Well, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. 
It is at the cross that you see God's king pierced through his hands and his feet. It is at the cross that you see him thirsting. It is at the cross that you see him naked and humiliated while the soldiers cast lots for his clothing. And friends, it is precisely because this part of Psalm 22 is about the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ that we cannot immediately read ourselves into this passage at this point where the king cries the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, I went to Dimmick's, uh, the bookshop, the other day and uh, I was browsing through some books uh, which I, I love to do from time to time and uh, I stumbled upon a book uh, which was a novel and the extraordinary thing about this novel is that um, it was actually a novel where you could be the hero of this story. <laughs> uh, there were actually places in the novel where you could actually write your own name so that you become the main character in this story. You know, this is a, this is a novel about you. It's the spirit of our age, isn't it, to make everything about me. Uh, Friends, I wonder whether sometimes uh, we can read the Bible a bit like that. You know, we often make um, every part of the Bible about me. Uh, you know, you have a hard day at work, or you have a relationship breakup, or you have a tough day um, with the kids, and you turn to Psalm 22, and you start to think, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Or you glance down a few verses and you say to yourself, I am a worm and, and not a man. Now, um, friends, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I don't want to trivialise our suffering because I know that uh, for many of us, uh, suffering is real. Uh, we do feel uh, abandoned by God uh, at times. And we go through suffering with great intensity. And yet, uh, I think reading ourselves and our suffering into this part of the psalm too quickly trivializes the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. For at the cross, the suffering of Jesus is more excruciating than anything that collectively we have ever experienced. The perfect relationship that Jesus enjoyed with his Father for all of eternity is somehow ripped apart at the cross as the Son experiences the forsakenness of the Father. For he dies bearing the awful punishment of God for the sins of the whole world upon his shoulders, including your sin and my sin. If anything, I think understanding this psalm properly means that we may even actually have to see ourselves in the shoes of those who made Jesus suffer that day. I mean, I may not have been there at the cross 200 years ago. I, I may not have mocked him with my own mouth or driven the, the nails through his hands and his feet. And yet, if I had been there, if you had been there, 
you know what? We would have done exactly the same thing as those who did. After all, it was not only their sinfulness that put Jesus to death on the cross, but it is my sinfulness and your sinfulness that drove Jesus to the suffering of the cross to rescue us from sin. Um, in, a, in a little while, we're going to sing the popular hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And uh, I think uh, uh, this, this hymn is right when it says, Behold, my, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Do you hear your mocking voice? Call out among the scoffers. Every time we rejected God, every time we wanted Him dead and out of our lives, every time we wanted Him at arm's length, it is as though our voice sails across, joining the mockers, calling out among the scoffers. Well, friends, uh, if you have a look at the second half of this psalm then, uh, you will see that suddenly there is a striking change of mood here, isn't there? Uh, it's as though the suffering has been replaced by victory. It's as though the death has been replaced by life. It's as though God has vindicated his suffering king by rescuing him ultimately from his death. Uh, this is nothing short of a resurrection. Whereas at, at the beginning of the psalm, the king was surrounded by his enemies and close to death, well, here we are he is surrounded by his brothers in the congregation of God's people, perhaps in the temple, in verse 22. And what are they doing in verse 26? Well, they are eating and, and celebrating in victory together with their king. Uh, now, friends, uh, you can see here that God has won the victory because of the praise that is given to him here. And so uh, notice that the very first person who gives praise to God is the king himself. Uh, you can see it there in verse 22 where he says to God, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you, says the king. But the praise doesn't just stop with the king, does it? For you can see there that the king turns into a, a praise leader or a song leader, and he actually invites everyone in the congregation to begin praising God. In verse 23, he says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. And why should they praise the Lord? Well, you can see it there in verse 24. It's because... The suffering or the affliction of the king was not actually the last word. It's because God did not ultimately abandon or forsake his king. It's because God did not stay silent forever, but he rescued this king from death so that he might reign over all the earth. But further, notice that in this psalm, it is not just Israel who benefits from God's victory, is it? It's not just Israel who benefits from God's victory in raising this king from suffering. 
But actually, what you see here is more and more people coming to praise God because of what he's done. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like when you throw a pebble in a pond. Uh, what happens? The, the little waves kind of ripple out uh, further and further, isn't it? Um, that's a little bit like what's happening here. You begin with the king praising God, and then you have the congregation of Israel praising God. And then if you have a look at verse 27, you have all the ends of the earth who turn to the Lord, and you have all the families of the nations who come to worship the Lord. But it's not just the living either. For you see, God's victory in saving this king from death is also good news for God's people who are no longer alive. In verse 29 it says, All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship, before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. But it's not just God's people who have returned to the dust, either. It's also the future generations who are not even born yet who will feel the effects of what God has done in saving his king from death. This is the, the gospel that you see here. Uh, in verse 30 it says, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They, will, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And how will the world and future generations come to praise the Lord? Well, it's through the proclamation of a message, isn't it? It's the message that you see there in verse 31. Uh, this is the gospel according to David in Psalm 22. It is the news that God has done it. God has done everything possible for the nation's and for the future generations to come, to come back to him and praise him and worship him and serve him as their God. Because God has done it. He has saved his king from death. Well, friends, uh, it's very difficult to read this psalm and not clearly see that it's speaking about Jesus, as we've already seen. Jesus is the one who was forsaken by the Father at the cross so that you and I might never be forsaken by God. Jesus is the one whom God rescued victoriously from the grave so that he might be our king and saviour. And so what are the implications for us as we read these words? Um, what are the implications for us as people who belong to this king in our lives? Uh, I've got uh, three very quick things for us to, to take away and to think about. Uh, firstly, praise God. Praise God. Uh, we can praise God because he did not ultimately abandon Jesus to the suffering of the cross, but he victoriously raised him from the grave to be our king, to be our saviour. You remember Eddie? 
Uh, we all stood and watched him win the victory and we praised him and we celebrated because his victory was our victory. And we should be like that in praising God when we read this psalm. In fact, it is Jesus himself, the New Testament claims, who stands in the middle of his congregation, of his people, as our praise leader, as our song leader. Now, it's not Charles and, and Sophia who is our song leader, friends. It is actually Jesus who invites us to come and sing praises to him and to his Father. Now, we praise God whenever we speak well of him to one another, not only in song, but as part of our corporate life together as his people. And so will you praise God in this way uh, in your life and in my life? Uh, secondly, tell the message to others. Uh, we've, seen, we've, we've seen here, haven't we, that God's victory in raising his uh, king from the dead will ripple out towards all the earth so that people from every nation will turn to God and praise him and worship him and serve him. But the way that this will happen is through the proclamation of a message, as we've heard. It's the message that God has done it. God has raised his suffering king from the dead to rule the world. And so... Given that's the case, we invite people to turn back to God, to, to submit their life to the rule of this king and find a place in the great banquet of heaven itself. How are you and I going in telling people of this great news? Do we believe this great news? That it is this, through this message that people will come to find life for all eternity. And finally, friends, trust God in your suffering. Trust God in your suffering. Now, I mentioned before that the person who suffers uh, in the first part of this psalm uh, is not necessarily us uh, in the first instance. It is God's king. However, if you and I belong to Jesus and are united to him, then we are the ones who can identify with him in his suffering. And uh, we are the ones who are also invited to pray the prayers that are on Jesus' lips, knowing that we can never suffer in the way that he suffered, but we can suffer trusting in the Father. For we also know suffering, don't we? Uh, sometimes it's the suffering that comes from being mocked as God's people in this world. Other times it is the suffering of sickness or cancer or depression or loneliness or poverty or barrenness and the heartache of not being able to have children, at least not yet. Uh, we often know the darkness of living in this world we can even feel abandoned by God at times. And so we can cry out to God with the psalmist in our suffering. But friends, just as sure as 
God rescued Jesus as he trusted the Father through his suffering, what this psalm assures us is that the same God will rescue all those who trust him through suffering. All those who trust and cling on to him and rely on him through these difficult times. For a day is coming when suffering will cease and God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes as we enjoy the delights of feasting with him in heaven. Uh, You can see it there in verse 26. Verse 26, God promises, The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And so, friends, brothers and sisters, if you're suffering, trust God. Put your faith in him, rely on him, and cling to him in your suffering. For we have a God who assures us that he will rescue us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you in particular for our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, In many ways, the sheer depth of his suffering on the cross as he cried the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is a mystery to us. And yet we thank you that he trusted you and endured this suffering for us. We thank you that he was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken by you. Uh, Yet, Father, we thank you that in your great power you raised Jesus from the grave. We thank you that it is through the power of this resurrection that we can have new birth and the hope of everlasting life. And so we pray that as we live this life, united to your Son, that we might live with this hope. Uh, We pray in particular for all those who may be suffering in some way, whether it be suffering for um, living as a Christian person or the suffering of living in this fallen world, we pray that you would comfort them with the hope of the gospel and that you would continue to uphold them, that they might keep trusting you who one day will deliver us from this world of suffering. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.